What is the best and most appropriate response to good news? You go to see the doctor, you're expecting and fearing the worst, but he gives you a checkup, and the results come back, and they're all clear. Or you've been anxious about a friend or a, a child whom, with whom you've lost touch. The phone rings, your heart sinks, but when they speak and they, you find them well and happy, you're elated. Whatever the specifics are, good news requires a reaction. You should technically feel something. A level of excitement, perhaps, of expectation, a thrill going up and down your backbone. You might want to tell people, tell others about it. That is, if you can stop the words coming out so fast and furious that they don't make any sense. Occasionally, good news is too good to be expressed in measured tones, like the news that war is over. Those vivid pictures you remember of, maybe you don't remember, of Times Square after the Second World War came to an end. I've just seen it in newsreels. But people on that square just turning around to the nearest person, as long as they were a beautiful girl, giving them a hug and demonstrating that the news was really good. In the 1812 overture, there comes a point where all the marching armies and the notes of war and the bloodshed are suddenly and triumphantly overtaken by notes of peace. Bells ring out. The mood of the music changes into an outburst of joy like nothing else. Well, in the great gospel symphony we call Isaiah, we've heard the dark notes repeated over and over again as he describes the human condition apart from God. In the midst of that black mood, we've had reprised many times, mingled in there, some teasing moments of mood change, hints of a brighter future for Israel and for humanity. The dark moods, the The black moments have reminded us again and again and again, most recently in chapter 48, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And yet, early on there's been an announcement that there's coming someone who will be the Prince of Peace. And by the time we get to chapter 53, we're reading about one upon whom the punishment is placed That brings us peace. So these these moments of blackness and despair come to their climax in chapter 53. If the book of Isaiah rises like a Mount Everest among the Himalayan prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures, then in that enormously wonderful mountain of Mount Everest, the peak is chapter 53. That is the high place where we get to grips with the God of the Bible in the clearest, most vivid, most dramatic way as he demonstrates what he and he alone will do through his servant for the benefit of Israel and the nations. Isaiah has a right to our hearing, just as he had to the, the hearing of the people to whom he is speaking. As he predicts to his own people, the attack of the Assyrians and the destruction of the northern kingdom, the 12 tribes who would disappear. 
as he gives a a foretaste of the rise of Babylon. He gives pause to those in his own generation and the generations after his death. His prediction of the rise to power of Persia and even the naming of the new ruler Cyrus settles his place in the Hebrew, in the canon of Hebrew scripture. Moses had said that the test of a true prophet is that his prophecies come true 100%. And in generation after generation as Isaiah's prophecy comes true, so his place is even more firmly established as the major prophet of all the major prophets of the Old Testament scripture. And we take him even more seriously. Because we've seen how 700 years after he had written, the virgin conceived and brought forth that child, Emmanuel, God with us. And we have seen in the life of Jesus, Isaiah 53 come true in all its details, come true in the work of his rejection by his people, in, in the being despised and rejected, in the, in the terrible disfigurement of his appearance as a result of his being mauled by angry soldiers, in his sufferings and his death. We've seen all of that come true. Isaiah demands our respect. He demands that we listen. There in chapter 53, God does his greatest work for all of humanity. There in Isaiah 53, he proclaims that he has done everything that needs to be done through his servant, the Messiah, removing the fundamental problem of the human race above all the injustices and all the idolatries and all the inadequacies and iniquities of humanity. Underlying it all is the sin problem. And in Isaiah 53... We have the announcement that sin has been removed, righteousness has been established, and in the Messiah servant, Jesus, a new family has been created. The key verse is this, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And so in chapter 54, verse 10, my covenant of peace shall not be removed. If the first part of Isaiah is telling you that there is war between God and humanity, in which God is the aggressor and man, humanity, is the, rebellion, is, is the rebellious subject. The announcement that there would be an end to warfare in chapter 40 verse 1 now finds its explanation in the crucial final battle of the war at Calvary. The Messiah's servant Jesus has accomplished the great victory whereby he may announce peace has now broken out. And the armistice, the peace treaty, signed and sealed. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. So what are we to do with this good news? 
Well, Isaiah says, sing about it. Sing out about it. Sing. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud. That's the only response that we can have. In other words, the good news of the gospel is such that you cannot play it cool. You can't be coy or controlled or or just kind of indifferent to this good news. John Calvin once wrote this. The church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. And then he went on to say this. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. So whether you're unhappy or happy this morning, there is nothing like the gospel to get you out of yourself and to lift you up to heaven as you sing God's praises. Well, why are they to sing? Here we're now working out the results of the work the servant performed by his death recorded in chapter 53. Here they are. First of all, verses 1 to 3. For barrenness, there is fruitfulness. Sing, O barren one. Now, I know I'm I'm a pastor... And I'm a father, and therefore, perhaps with an insight that there are many in our congregation who find themselves in the position where they cannot find children, have children. And that is no laughing matter. It's it's a serious matter. It's a heartbreak to those people. And I want you to know, as we come to look at this text this morning, we are not, by looking at this text, indifferent to your position Our hearts break for you. Our prayers are with you. But here in this text, Isaiah is not speaking about an individual woman. He is speaking about Zion. He's speaking about the church of God, the bride of the Lamb. He is speaking about the people of God as a church in the world. Israel, the church of that day, Israel at that point has been unproductive, in, uh, uh, by any measure, unproductive spiritually. She has not produced offspring for God. There's a background, of course, here. You, do, you notice in those opening words, for example, the barrenness of verse 1, the tent of verse 2, uh, both remind us of the story of Abraham, Abraham's wife. You remember Sarah was barren, and she was also beyond childbearing age, and there was this situation. They lived in tents. Theirs was a nomadic existence. But verse 3, God had promised them offspring. God had said to Abraham that he would be productive and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars on the sky or as the sand on the seashore. And it wasn't going to happen, naturally. It wasn't going to happen. And similarly, Israel. Israel is full of shame because Israel, the nation, had not produced offspring for God. She was meant to be a light to the nations, and she had failed to be a light to the nations. 
she had meant to take the good news of the gospel that God had given to her and share it with the peoples round about, but she had kept it to herself. Not only that, had she kept it to herself, but instead of worshiping the Lord God alone, she had added to the Lord God all these other gods of all these other nations round about and diluted the worship of Yahweh. She was spiritually in a desolate situation. God's addressing her. And there are key words here taken over from chapter 53 where the servant dies for the many, where the servant justifies many. And here in chapter 54 we find the use of that word many repeated again. There in chapter 53, the Messiah, by his death, will produce offspring. He will produce a family. And here in chapter 54, we have a reference to the family. So here, look at it like this. Break forth and sing, barren one. You who haven't been in labor. In other words, you haven't done the work to have the children. For the children of the desolate one will be many. That, by the way, the word more here is the same word many you find in chapter 53. And there's a deliberate connection here. The the children of the desolate one will be many than the children, much more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Here Here is God's promise. God's promise is this. He is going to do a supernatural work by which Zion, with all of its sin and all of its desolation, will produce the offspring that it has failed to do up until the work of the servant. In fact, his offspring, chapter 53, will be her children, chapter 54. The offspring that he has worked for and that he has produced Chapter 53 will become her children, chapter 54. Now when the Apostle Paul is reflecting on this very verse in Galatians 4, he describes two ways in which people try to serve God. One way is the way of good intentions and hard work. You try harder, you work longer, you sacrifice more. In order, in order to try and build a relationship with God. We do that sometimes in order to try and build relationships with people. We try it with God. And Paul says there in Galatians, that will not work. You think of Abraham. Abraham takes things into his own hands. He thinks, God has promised me offspring. Sarah is barren. I can't have offspring there. Sarah says, why don't you try the servant, Hagar? He tries the servant, Hagar. And the problems that emerge from that union are still with us today. And they're in the news every day, still to this very day. You take the wrong route, you get the wrong result. And it lasts for thousands of years. Abraham had to learn that the promises of God require a supernatural action on God's part. And these children referred to here in 54 are the spiritual children that are the result of the work of the servant, not Zion's work, not the church's work. They are God's work and they are God's gift to his people. And the promise here, flowing from the work of the servant, is there are going to be so many of them. 
He has died for the many. He will justify many. And so the children will be, verse 1, many. How many? Well, look at verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent. They're living in tents. Old Abraham was. And they worship in a tent. Eventually Israel in the desert. In a tabernacle. So they understand the connection. We would say get a builder in. And you know extend the house. He says extend the place of your tent. Put Add a bit more canvas on there. Spread it out. You get ready for more and more and more people to come and join you. In fact he says remember not only to do, to do that. But he says... Uh, Lengthen the cords. You're lengthening the cords so that you can have more canvas. And you're strengthening the stakes so that it can hold firm the extension. In other words, God is saying to the church, get ready for growth. And I have a very good friend just sitting right down here. Elder Frank Harder. And he's responsible for a lot of the work we've been doing and getting new buildings. And uh, he would like me to say right now, get ready for growth. And he'd be right, of course, to insert it into the passage. Because in many ways, that is precisely the message of this passage. God is going to grow his church. Here it's in the biggest meta sense of the church. He will build his church. William Carey was the the founder of Baptist missions. And he went to speak to a group of ministers who were not convinced about foreign missions back in the day in, in Northamptonshire in England. And he took as his text this verse. Enlarge the place of your tent. And he had two points to his sermon. The best two points of any sermon ever, he says with jealousy. Here were the points. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. If Frank Harder could preach to you this morning, those would be his exhortations. (laughs) Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. And that's what Isaiah is saying to the people. He's saying it to the whole church down through the ages. God is going to gather his people. They won't just come from Israel. They'll come from the nations. They'll come from the coastlands. Go as far away as you can imagine. He's going to gather people from those places into the church. Go around the corner from this building. He's going to gather people into the church of God. What an amazing promise that was. We, from our standpoint in redemptive history, look back over the corridor of time and we see how it is that in the last 2,700 years since Isaiah wrote this, God has done this work and he is growing his church. From barrenness, there's fruitfulness. Secondly, from alienation, there is reconciliation. Look at verse 4. From this great picture that God is going to give them offspring, spiritual offspring, who will will share the faith of Abraham and become children of Abraham by the grace of God. He then goes on to talk about, to address their alienation and to encourage them that there will be reconciliation. Because who is 
Who is, the God, who is God speaking to here? Well, he's speaking to Israel, conscious as Israel is, the, the believers that is, conscious as the believers are, that Israel has failed. They have already seen the splitting apart of Israel. Northern Israel with its ten tribes to the north has been in association with Syria and Assyria will attack and will scatter them to the four quarters of the earth. And they will cease to exist as a national, independent, recognizable people. Israel is under the judgment of God. Isaiah has already prophesied to the people of his day that there will be uh, the rise of a power, Babylon, to the east. Their city will be destroyed. Their people will be taken captive. And so he recognizes that believers in that context are going to recognize the problem is ours. We, we got us ourselves into this. Isaiah has been telling that, us that over and over and over again, sometimes ad nauseum. From the very beginning, the real problem, the fundamental problem is in your heart and it's sin. That's what keeps us from God. And now he's announcing, you see, that God has dealt with the sin problem. And what he's saying to these people is, do you notice his first words, fear not. What does shame, what does sin bring? It brings shame. It leads us to be confounded. We don't have anything to say, no argument to bring. We're silent with guilt. And it brings disgrace. And God is saying to these people, he's saying to you and me this morning, because of the work of Jesus Christ, your Messiah on the cross. What does he say? Look at verse 4. Forget the shame. Forget the guilt. Forget the disgrace. God is going to take that all away from you. You will remember it no more. God has, through the Messiah Jesus, dealt with guilt, sin, rebellion, everything that would keep you from God. He's done that. He's done it all. Now you see, can I believe that? Well, yes, look at verse 4. It begins with the word for. He's basing that promise on this. Here's the reality, God says to them. Your maker is your husband, the creator of the whole earth. He is your husband. By using that phrase or that expression, your husband, he's saying this. He has voluntarily, deliberately formed an unbreakable relationship with you. The maker of heaven and earth has formed this, deliberately formed this unbreakable relationship designed to last with you, his people. And here's the flow of the passage. Verse 1, the existence of the church. Verse 2, the growth of the church. Verse 4, the security of the church is all guaranteed by the promise and the per person of God himself. Isn't that amazing? He undertakes to do it himself. Who is this Lord? He is the Lord of hosts. 
Remember Jacob's dream? He saw the Lord served by myriads of angels who are constantly going up and down, streaming from heaven to earth and back to heaven again, supervising and controlling everything that takes place on earth. This is the Lord who gives you his promise this morning. The Lord of armies, the Lord who not only knows everything, but has the power to change anything. And he is your redeemer. Remember what a redeemer is. A redeemer is someone who is your kin, that is related to you. The servant will take on humanity. He will become human. He will humble himself to become a human being, to be related to you, to have your stuff, flesh, in order that he might do what's necessary to make you his own. You remember the story of Ruth in the Bible. It's a key story in understanding what redeeming means and what redemption means. Ruth, as she appears in the story, is a foreign widow who is childless, That is, and she has no prospects at a human level, only a life of misery and misunderstanding and poverty. And then comes along this man called Boaz. First thing we're told about Boaz is he notices her. It tells you that in the text. Second thing he does is he asks some people about her, nonchalantly, of course. Did you notice the uh, woman who's, uh, you know, that one over there? You, did you seen her? Who, who does she belong to? Can I have her phone number? I mean, does anybody know who, who she is? And as the story goes on, you discover he falls in love with her. He not only falls in love with her, He does all that's required, everything that is required. Acting wisely like the servant did. He has done absolutely everything that is necessary to ensure that she can be his. The Lord who is your Redeemer has done everything that was necessary to make you, church, his wife, his person, his bride, whom he loves. And who is our Redeemer? Our Redeemer is, in fact, the Holy One of Israel. He is your Redeemer. Well, that's remarkable. Holiness is not the word that would immediately come to mind. Holiness is scary. Holiness sets God apart from us and above us and against us because we're unholy. This man, Isaiah, knew perfectly well what the holiness of God looked like. He saw it when he was in the temple that day. And what the holiness of God did was it scared the living daylights out of him. He said, I am coming apart. I'm undone in the presence of a holy God. But now Isaiah is able to use this expression when he's announcing the good news to you. Why? Because the redemption that he brings is a holy redemption. The redemption that he brings to you does two things. It it satisfies the requirements of God's holy nature and it meets the needs of our human nature. It does what is necessary for us. And so he moves on to underline then the compassion of God. The Lord has called you 
Like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. He comes with restoring grace. He draws them back to himself. There's no doubt that Israel lost her land and her city, Jerusalem. She was exiled. But God was going to do more than just simply bring a few of them back from Babylon back to Jerusalem. No, this book of Isaiah has told us God had a bigger plan in mind, a greater exodus in mind. He was going to bring them, but also sinners from across the world, back to himself. He illustrates it. Look at verse 7. He illustrates it to these people who will be taken into exile. For a brief moment I deserted you. Even the people in Isaiah's day recognized that. They'd seen the fracturing of the kingdom. They'd seen the assault on the ten tribes to the north that would lead eventually to their disappearance. They had seen evidences of the judgment of God upon them. They saw that. And so they knew that God had hidden his face from them. And the more Isaiah taught them about their future, the more they saw the evidences of that reality. But that wasn't the end of the story. That was not going to be the end of the story. After a brief experience of the results of sin, the Lord was going to act not only for believing Israelites, but for believers. Whether they were from Israel or the nations, he was going to act for them with great compassion. I will gather you, says the Lord, with great compassion. I will bring you back. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face. But with everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Now I wonder, I wonder whether you have a problem with the anger of God. Maybe you come from an angry home. There's enough anger there. No, you don't want it at church. Or maybe you come from an angry place of work. And there's enough anger there, and you don't want it when you come to church. But there's a sense in which the anger of God should reassure you. I've been a pastor long enough to know that not only will someone come to me at times who is living in an angry environment and who needs to be extracted from that environment for their own personal safety, in those occasions, I call the police. But there have been many, many times when a husband or a wife have in the quietness of my study told me about their spouse. If only they'd get angry, then I'd know that they cared. Do you understand that? Can you imagine a God who doesn't get angry? Plato's unmoved mover? Is that the kind of God you want? That is not the God of the Bible. He's a God who feels deeply. That's why the servant has to come and make peace. By taking the punishment we deserve. He takes it on himself. Look at verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Appreciate his love because he has made a covenant of peace with us. 
What the servant did was, he dealt with the anger of God. He did it by God's initiative. God stills his own anger by the work of his own servant. So that there is no anger against us. Only peace. Peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that an amazing thing? This perfect arrangement, the peace that brings, the covenant that brings shalom is unconditional. I want you to notice the context of it. Look at verse 9 there. He refers to the days of Noah. Remember the days of Noah? Nothing, the world had never been as bad as it was then and God acts to judge the world. He puts Noah and his family in an ark and then he sends the deluge and the deluge wipes out the human race. And after the flood, God comes to Noah and he points to the rainbow and he says, doesn't that rainbow look like my war bow? I'd gone out in war against humanity and I've exhausted the judgment. I will no longer do that. I will no longer judge the world with a flood. I've hung up my war bow. Because I'm satisfied with the judgment that has fallen. And here in Isaiah, the prophet is saying to us this morning, God has hung up his war bow against humanity in its rebellion against him. And he is saying to us this morning, I am satisfied with the judgment that fell on your place taker on Calvary. With your substitute, the Savior at Calvary, I am satisfied that the punishment that was laid on him that belonged to you has brought peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And at this table in a moment, we are going to hear Jesus' words. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the third picture is the move from insecurity to security, verses 11 and bow down to 17. It's all about a city. It talks to people who are afflicted, storm-tossed, not comforted. And he describes a most perfectly beautiful city made of precious stones, beautiful to the eye, pleasing to the senses, absolutely solid, secure, from the insecurities they felt because of sin. Sin makes you feel insecure. Whenever you've done something wrong, you have this basic sense that, of insecurity in your heart. Life is not stable anymore. It's not firm anymore. And here the promise is that God will bring security where there has been insecurity there will be a city built in righteousness. Verse 14. There's another word that comes out of Isaiah 53. What does the, the righteous servant do is this. He accounts sinners righteous. 
We're made right with God by the work of the servant on our behalf. So the people of God, described like a torn, storm-tossed, poverty-stricken, not comforted crowd, are told that now there is a dazzling city that is absolutely secure, and it's secure in righteousness. Now what, what, what is based here is a spiritual reformation. That's what's in view. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror it shall not come near you. Here you are in a position of absolute security. You're not going to be terrified. You're not going to be oppressed. You shall not fear. You're in a right relationship with God. And all the children will be taught this. All the children, all the new believers, whether they're covenant children or whether they're new believers brought in from the nations, brought in from the outside world into the kingdom, all of them will be taught that they have peace with God through the Messiah servant who died in their place. That's the basis of it. And that peace, that shalom, will work its way out in terms of righteousness in the kingdom that God has established. Here is Zion, the city of God. Here it is now splendid with banners. Here it is now firm and secure. Here we belong. We belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. Our names are written in the citizenship of that heavenly Jerusalem. That's where our identity lies. We have come not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God to the multitude of those whose names are written in heaven. That's where we belong today. That's where our identity lies. Sing about this, he says. Sing for joy about this. And sing for joy that you're now, your new position in this city is absolutely secure. Look at verse 17. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness from me declares the Lord these are the people this is their heritage you notice for the first time Isaiah is using the word servants in the plural because of our connection to the servant we now too are servants of the Lord and it's our righteousness Vindication is a very bad word. It's our righteousness that comes from him. You'll see that in the footnote. Declares the Lord. That's the context. They're the beneficiaries of the work that the Savior has done for them on the cross. So here are the citizens of a restored Zion... They have a right standing before God because of the one who has justified them by faith in Christ, who has put them into a right relationship with God. And they go out into the world and do you see their security in the world is this. Their security is this, no weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed. No matter who wields the weapon, whether it's a secularist, whether it's a pagan, whether it's a governmental body, whether it's the, the ISIS or whoever it might be, no weapon formed against you will ever succeed. 
Because your standing is secure. Your standing is secure in Christ Jesus. Now I want to ask you this morning, do you get this? There's a lot of stuff for you to process in your head. The the big chapter, you're not used to big chunks. I should have split up into five sermons, but I thought after five of them in Isaiah 53, you needed a break. Uh, Whether you needed a break or not, we all needed this. Here's the good news. That what we couldn't do for ourselves, God has done in Christ. Here's the good news. Our standing before God is absolutely secure. Our citizenship in heaven is absolutely secure. We stand in righteousness. The righteousness of our Savior. And it's all based on his blood. His blood sacrifice. Wounded for me. Wounded for me. There on the cross he was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions. Now I am free. And all because Jesus was wounded for me. Father, we pray that you would write your word in our hearts, especially now as we gather around the table, to put our hands on and to feel in our lips the promise of your word repeated. We pray that that would be real to us. We ask in Jesus' strong name. Amen.